Hello and welcome into NCBI's Technology Podcast. My name is Stuart Lawler. This is episode number 33 for February 2015. Well, hope you're enjoying the uh, beginning of the year so far. The first month's been good to you, and I hope you're staying warm. It's very cold in Ireland at the moment. Uh, thank you, as always, for downloading and subscribing to our monthly technology podcast. Stay with us for the next 66 or so minutes, because we'll be meeting Niall Gallagher from Sligo, who's just graduated with a Master's in Human Resource Management from the University of Limerick. Ed Rogers and Steph Tiska are along to tell us all about a new multi-line Braille reader called the Canute. And finally, Elner Burke is here to talk talk about her use of KNFB Reader for iOS, amongst other bits of technology. That's all coming up on this month's edition of NCBI's Technology Podcast. Starting us off this month, we've mentioned KNFB Reader for iOS a couple of times on this podcast. We demonstrated it in December. And of course, as you'll have heard there, we're going to be speaking to Eleanor Burke uh, later on on this episode, and she's going to talk about her use of the app. Well, if that wasn't enough, the people from KNFB Reading Technologies have been in touch to tell us that KNFB Reader is currently selected as part of the App Store's Get Productive campaign, which aims to highlight apps that promote efficiency and uh, as a result of that, the KNFB Reader app is currently selling at 50% off the recommended price. So that's somewhere around 44, 45 euros. If you want to check that out on the App Store, it would be a very good time uh, to grab that app. And that is a limited offer, uh, they tell us. So um, at time of recording in early February, the app is 45 euros. If you want to check if it still is, grab it very fast. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, please send an email to Technology Podcast at ncbi.ie. Quick reminder that if you are listening on your boombox or USB memory key provided to you through the NCBI Media Centre and you know somebody else who would also like to join and get involved with our podcast using this method of distribution, please contact the Media Centre directly on 018642266 and they'll be very happy to add you to the list. We're anxious to hear your feedback on our podcast, including the length of the podcast. We're still uh, getting some feedback from people, and it's kind of 50-50 at the moment. Uh, some people are saying that there should be a sort of monthly 40- to 45-minute episode. Others are saying it should be dictated by the content and, I suppose, the length of interviews. So uh, keep the comments coming in. Again, Technology Podcast at ncbi.ie. It's always nice to check in with people who are blind or have low vision, find out what they're doing and how technology is impacting on their lives. It's time to do that once again. This month, we're going to Sligo. I'm delighted to be introducing Niall Gallagher. Niall and I have been in email contact for about the last two months or so. Niall, you're very welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Stuart, and I'm pleased to be talking to you today. Yeah, great to chat to you. You uh, actually emailed me, I think, towards the end of November, and I know you're a regular listener. And, I, you know, I think the kind of thrust of your email was you were just keen to share your technology experiences. I was, Stuart, and it was after I had heard Connor Hegarty. He's the AT trainer in UL, and I'd worked with him. So once I heard him on the podcast, that motivated me to make contact with yourself. Fantastic. Well, absolutely lovely to have you on. Tell us just, just, just a little bit about yourself first, because I, I, I know you've, you've just completed a master's in human resource management, but let's maybe go back a little bit. Um, tell us a bit about maybe your, um, your vision impairment and, and your schooling and, and that kind of stuff. Well, I, I'm registered as blind and I also reduce mobility. So I walk with a walking aid. It's a relator. I'm not sure if anyone would be familiar with it. And I went to mainstream primary school and then I was introduced to assistive technology there around, I'd say, fifth or sixth class. And then I progressed on to secondary school to do my junior leafing cert. 
So what was the mainstreaming and rather the, I suppose, the use of technology in mainstreaming? What was that experience like, especially in primary school? Because, you know, sometimes we hear that the way in which technology is introduced varies so much depending on the school, on the supports you have around you. You know, how did that work for you? Well, at, when I was at uh, primary school, there wasn't, it was a big thing to have a com- computer in the classroom. It was really a novelty and you were very lucky to actually get on onto the computer. So when I was introduced to my own laptop with Zoom text, it was it was really something. It's I always think it's interesting, especially in school, primary and, and probably secondary, but possibly even more so primary. You're the one with the computer, you're the kind of cool guy. Did did that make <laughs> the mainstreaming experience easier, do you think? Yeah, it definitely everyone thought, oh, how cool is it? Yeah. Niall has a laptop. And I think especially yeah. when, when it's something that maybe, you know, oh, it can enlarge the print or, you know, it can say my name. People get excited yeah. about that, don't they? Yeah. yeah. And it's it's actually just come back to me now. I Earlier in primary, I had a CCTV, the closed circuit the television, and it was really... It was amazing to everyone else that I could make it so big and all that type of thing. I think, you know, technology is a... People often talk about guide dogs being an icebreaker. I think technology is an mm. icebreaker as well, isn't it? Oh, definitely it would be. There's no there's no stigma attached to technology. And when it can do something that other people don't expect, it really... It starts a conversation more times than it doesn't. Okay, so take us into to secondary school in Sligo. Um, it's always interesting when people have to move around a school, not only carrying a bag of books, but maybe in your case you were carrying a laptop. Were you carrying some other bits of technology as well for your CCTV? Yeah, along with my uh, vision impairment, I, um, I have reduced mobility. And during the end of primary school, I actually had an operation in relation to that. So when I went to secondary, I had a special needs assistant who accompanied me around school and carried my bags and books and things like that. So I just, at that stage, I just had the laptop and normal school bag. Okay, and and I mean, clearly you needed that because you couldn't possibly carry all that stuff around and have to use a mobility. Oh, no, there's yeah. no way. <laughs> okay, okay. So so let's talk about college, which I suppose is, is why you contacted us because you wanted to talk a little bit about technology within college. Did you, mm-hmm. you've done a master's in UL. Did you do your undergrad in UL as well? I didn't. I did my undergrad in Sligo okay. and then I dropped down to UL. So what did you study in Sligo? I studied a Bachelor of Business and specialised in HRM in the last year. And in terms of accessibility, because so much material now, I I was doing a course last year and there was so much stuff online. We were using an online platform called Moodle, which is one of a number of e-learning systems that um, universities are using. Did Did you find the accessibility of material easier than it was, let's say, in secondary school? I used the same online system and it was quite good. The, the major barrier that I came up against was inaccessible PDFs or lecturers scanning in charts and they assumed because it's in PDF it can be read by all technology and it was a bit of a stumbling block. I had to explain that if it's not tagged correctly or creating Microsoft Word first it won't actually work with JAWS, which has now changed. PDFs are always a challenge, I think, aren't they? Because yeah, I, I suppose exactly as you said, it depends how they're created. People often now are um, are distributing PDFs as, as a, an image. And unless you mm-hmm. have some kind of OCR software or unless you're using, unless your screen reader of choice has some functionality, which which at the moment one or two do, to, um, mm-hmm. to, interrogate, to interrogate that image, you're going to have problems. Oh, definitely, yeah. And it's only later that I realised, like the OCR technology that you mentioned, it can be so useful with the inaccessible PDFs. What was the experience for you in college when you're, and I imagine in business, there's a lot of reading, um, you're trying to get through pages and pages of stuff. When a book or a text isn't 
marked up correctly, isn't linked, uh, the pages don't connect, they don't have, you know, correctly um, structured headings. You know, what was that experience like? At the time, it was, um, well, frustrating just to mind, but then you're also panicking a little bit because you're in the mindset that, well, everyone else has this book or PDF or set of notes except me. But in social situations and in group work, you just explain to your off friends, the classmates become, so you can explain your situation and they they will always help and they understand what's going on, so they'll always try to help. I but d- definitely speaking to your lecturer as well, it's the number one thing to do to explain that the core textbook maybe isn't available yet, you don't have it, and maybe they can explain the notes more than they normally would, and that enhances your notes. So maybe the book, just for that one occasion until you get it, it's not as essential. Going to Limerick after your primary degree to do the Masters, and, mm-hmm. and as you mentioned, we had uh, Connor uh, on the on the podcast from UL, and, and there's no doubt they have a fantastic setup in UL. What was that experience like for you? Because they, they do so much in terms of supports there, don't they? It, they do, and it was mind-blowing, really, because where I did my undergrad in Sligo, they had no supports like that. They had an, an AT room in my fourth year the last couple of months. But before that, they were getting the raw PDFs from publishers. And you had to wait a long time to get screen readers or updates to screen readers. And then to get the training in UL. I actually went down for a week before my course began and that's when I had the training with Connor and Thomas and the other accessibility team down there and it was really beneficial. I There was elements of word I was quite uh, familiar with it but there was elements like putting in headings and setting up the quick toolbar at the top of the window and things that just made every data so much easier with Word, but I wasn't aware of the capability before I'd done the training. It sounds to me like this training obviously gave you all those key skills that you've mentioned, but it also, uh, throughout your time on, on the on the master's course, increased your productivity. Yeah, I got um, the first thing I did with the master's, actually, the thesis was create a template that I could paste to work into. And all that template was created with the training that I'd received from UL. And within the Masters, you were presumably as well doing a lot of stuff online. Was there was there an e-learning platform in use as well? Yeah, the e-learning platform down there, I still can't pronounce it. It's either Sulis or Sulis. Okay, never I'm heard not of sure it. which, but it, it was quite good. But um, unlike Moodle, it... I, in my personal opinion, it overuses headings and everything is in a table. So while it's good for navigation when you get used of the website, at first it's a bit daunting that where do I go type thing. And the screen reader is the overload with information kind of thing. So. Now, you mentioned screen readers just there, and you mm-hmm. obviously earlier mentioned Zoom text. Are you screen reader exclusive now, or are you kind of moving between speech and magnification, or where are you on your use of technology? Oh, I'm screen reader exclusive now. Okay, and what screen reader do you use? Yeah. What platform? Mostly JAWS. It's JAWS 14, but I also have the iPhone and a Mac. So I'm switching between JAWS and VoiceOver all the time, really. Now, I'm an iPhone user as well, and, and I, mm-hmm. I use JAWS, but I haven't uh, used a Mac. And I suppose I haven't used a Mac because I'm using Windows every day in, in my work life. Um, mm-hmm. And I haven't been able to, or at least from what I hear from people saying this idea of compartmentalizing your mind, is it is it a big 
thing to use the two together? How, how has that worked for you? Um, I'm I'm really interested in technology anyway, so learning to use voiceover was really just an extension of that interest. I wanted to use the Mac, so I had to learn how to use voiceover. It wasn't really a choice that was just driven by my interest. The, I suppose the main um, the main criticism of voiceover is that you have to use so many fingers. Yeah. Well, that's what they say, but y- you do get used to it after a while. You, it's only two main buttons, and then that's your left hand, and your right hand does all the work, really. So we're living in a very interesting time with technology, and, and you've been talking there about Windows and uh, iOS and, indeed, Mac OS, and you're sort of hoping to move into the world of work soon. What do you think is missing for you, or, or maybe what was missing in college, or what, what's, what do you think it might be lacking that would just make life that little bit easier? Number one, definitely, is either an online or offline directory of textbooks for courses in third level and postgraduate. Because in secondary school and maybe primary school now, I'm not too sure, but definitely when I was in secondary school, there was large print books that you could access and um, electronic versions of those books as well. But from my experience, once you get to third level and beyond, you're relying on the institution to source those books. And while UL is exceptional in their sourcing of books, everyone, I don't feel, is so good at doing that. Yeah, I I suppose what you're saying is there isn't this centralised repository, for want of a better word, or centralised area within the country that's sort of helping the universities by collating this directory of textbooks where you can where you can kind of go to find something you're relying on. I suppose somebody trying to reinvent the wheel again and again. Yeah, exactly. Because um, all the... I would have had maybe 10 to 12 main core books in my undergrad. And it seemed to be, from my experience, it seemed to be the first time they've been converted into accessible formats in the institution where I was. And if they had, if there was some way that they could be shared to all the other institutions around the country, it would, it would save months for other students. They wouldn't have to wait at all to get their textbooks and they wouldn't be left relying on their students or feel the pressure of having to go up to a lecture that they finally began in their class and explain the whole situation. Niall, what advice would you, someone who has just completed a master's degree, you've presumably put an, an, an awful lot of work into it, you're, you're going into the job market, what advice would you give to people who are maybe embarking on a course? Maybe there's people listening to this, they're going to be starting college, or maybe there's somebody, you know, g- going to um, re-enter the education sector. What advice is, what's important for people who are maybe using technology and thinking of going back into education? Mm-hmm. I definitely say the number one thing is to get some AT training because that it's essential really and it's just benefited me so much from UL and I hadn't received training before that so I didn't really know where I stood but um, it just it gave me so many capabilities that were used throughout the course in Limerick. I really think it's it should be number one on the list. Well, it's interesting because we often say to people, and I've been asked about this personally, uh, mm. you know, know your assistive technology inside out. And if you do, then the rest of the stuff that you're going to learn in the mainstream will be easier. Oh, definitely, yeah. The access to it and you yourself producing reports or assignments, everything is so much easier once you know how to use JAWS, how to use Word with JAWS. It's it's so much easier. It makes it much more streamlined. 
All right, Niall, you're, um, you love technology. You've said it already. You're clearly into your tech. Hmm. It's got you through college. So we have to ask you before we let you go, what's the one piece of technology that Niall Gallagher is never without? What can we not take off you? I think it, it, as predictable as it might be, it has to be the iPhone. Fair enough. Many I, people have I said it. I can't put it down. Yeah. I, I, listen, I happened to, was going out the other night and, and forgot my phone and was only without it for oh. two and a half hours, but <laughs> I really missed it. <laughs> so I understand oh, I that. Can't. It's just, it's endless, the possibilities. Niall, it's been absolutely lovely to chat to you. Thank you, um, first of all, for getting in touch and for offering to talk to us and for sharing your story and for sharing a a really positive way and giving some really practical advice for how people are using technology. Wish you all the very best with your the next chapter, I suppose, in your career. And we'll be hoping to stay in touch with you. Um, And again, thank you sincerely for coming on. Thank you, Stuart. And thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today. You're listening to NCBI's Technology Podcast for February 2015, and I'm sitting here in our rehabilitation center in NCBI, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Ed Rogers and Steph Tiska, who are part of Bristol Braille Technology and a group called the Braillists, respectively, and we're going to be talking about all that and a very exciting new innovation and invention called Canute. Guys, you're very welcome, first of all. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. Ed, let's start with you because Bristol Braille Technology is is a company or a, a service or an organization that you formed. Yes. it's um, Well, I when I was at university in 2008, I, I got curious about, um, about Braille and I, I started trying to make a little prototype and it didn't work very well, as, as of course most of these things don't when, you, when, you're, when you're an amateur. I, had no, I was from an animation background at the time I was learning animation and then a, 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 couple of, a year later when I'd left university I thought I, I really bugged me that I hadn't managed to make a functional braille display so we start, I started back on the project and formed the company in uh, Bristol Braille Technology Community Interest Company a not for profit in February 2011 and we've been making machines ever since then and the Canute which um, we've, we've brought along today that's that started uh in right at the end of 2012 so it's a two-year project so just let me go back to the university for a sec because as a fully sighted person in university how had you even heard of braille displays how how did that even come up i I, you know i it's difficult to entirely remember i think i just i just had a i don't remember why exactly but obviously everyone knows about braille in a in a vague way okay and it just really interested me I, I i really liked the the format and so i started reading about it and then i started looking into braille typewriters and i looked at the displays and it just it was just struck me as remarkable and quite unjust the the prices people expected to pay for something which appeared to have the functionality of a 1970s terminal um which is to say just a single line but pay thousands of pounds for these things. So I, that, what really grabbed me was there must be a... The, the mechanical challenge behind it is there must be a way of doing something that, that people can actually afford. So Braille displays have been historically, obviously, and, and everyone knows this, they've been, they've, been, you know, they've been very expensive. Yes, they're coming down gradually, very gradually. Mm. Uh, not fast enough for lots of us. And, and this, so was this your, your, your real driving idea? Give, let's get a, a low-cost Braille display. Um, were you thinking multi-line at the time? Because the Canute in its current state, and we'll talk a bit about this in a while, is not just a single-line Braille, Braille display. I wasn't, no, initially, you're right, I was thinking about making a, um, a, a, a cheap Braille display, uh, which is single-line, just... Um, just trying all sorts of odd ideas, even trying things like ticker tape and, and revolving discs, which which I now know would never have worked, but it's interesting to try. Since then, um, after trying lots of different types, we decided that actually the the, the braille display as an uh, is, you know, the the ones that exist, the piezoelectrical ones, are are very good for what they do. And what we tried to decide to make was a, a different class of device, not a braille display, but a braille ebook reader. Which is what we're, which is what the Canute became. So it's not, it's not for indirect competition with it. It's a multi-line. It can be, as, it can have as many lines as as, as a user want, wanted to, um, wanted for. Was this was this multi-line 
um, aspect of the device, something that, that people were saying, <clears throat> this is badly needed, because straight away I'm thinking of subjects like particularly maths and music, where you really have to, in many cases, see two lines of Braille together to really understand what's going on. What, you know, is this what people were saying to you? Yes. I mean, we've been uh, informed right from the start by these two, two particular groups of, of people who actually knew what they were doing, unlike me. Um, and, and to a certain extent, most of the team, who, when they got started on this, the engineering team, didn't know anything about Braille before they started. Um, so it's like a team of amateurs in that sense, albeit professionals in their own fields. Um, so we were informed by, firstly by um, some some excellent people from the Braille industry, some retired engineers and so on who tell us about the technologies and so on, but also by people like Scott Wood from Action for Blind People who um, who who would 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 just make it really clear what, what the what the actual requirement is uh, for what people need and, and, and how limiting it is to not have any context with a single line. And uh, formulas we, we I'm told uh, are, are some of the it's one of the, yeah. the most useful places for multi-line. Sure. So at this moment in time, the the, the cheapest Braille display that I know of, um, I think anyway, certainly around Europe, is made by a company called Harpo in Poland. Very good Braille display, and it comes in just under a thousand euros. And I remember when we heard about it first, Ed, and we got excited because we thought it was great value. What? What price would you like to see? And I'm very conscious you're, that your device is, is still a, a prototype device. What price would you like to see a Braille terminal like yours sitting at? Well, um, like I say, also, uh, just, just to repeat, it, it's, uh, it would have a different set of functionality. So the, the price wouldn't be directly com- comparable. So it's more like a Kindle than a, than a display in that sense. But we are, nonetheless, we want to go uh, a fraction of the, the normal cost of a, of a, of, of a single-line braille display. We're interested in selling them for under the price of a Perkins brailler, okay. which in the UK um, is around about £440. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's, our, that's our target. This is under, we'd really like to get to £300 for a, for a four- to eight-line display. And at the moment, your display is currently output only so it is a braille display it doesn't have a braille keyboard but that's right yeah. we've spoken off air about this and, and you don't see any reason why that couldn't happen at some point we, we will have we will have some kind of inputs on the on the display yes whether that's a um it's this is something that um steph can talk about how this how this works is we, we when we when we present our stuff to um to, to the user group of, of braillists who, who meet and, and look at it they've they tell us what they would expect on it and and i think one of the outcomes from a previous meeting uh, about four months ago was would like the option like a module add-on so some people okay. some people would like to have it extra cheap without not having any any uh, keyboards but some people would like either a perkins style keyboard or a qwerty style keyboard okay so let's bring steph in um steph you're very welcome thanks Hello. for joining us it, it's very interesting before we talk about the, the about brailleless and about the importance of, of i suppose engaging with users yeah. um you and I and Ed have been in touch by email for about six weeks talking about this and planning a visit and getting, getting things set up. Yeah. And when I met Steph this morning, for the benefit of our listeners, I said to Steph, um, Steph, would you like to take my arm? I, I just assumed you were blind because you were sort of championing this Braillists user group. So I'll start by asking you the same. I asked Ed, what has got you as a fully sighted person so interested in Braille? Well, it's, um, I think as Ed uh, quite rightly pointed out that it's... Um it's an interesting topic of uh, getting people involved, bringing them uh, something that you'd think would be so obviously there, um, and so obviously is a need for it. Um, uh, but at the same time, it's a it's a it's a great conundrum of how you how you actually physically produce that, um, square that circle, if you like, and and get it and get it out there really so your role in this project if i can understand this correctly you're you're kind of i suppose bringing together groups of braille readers braille um braille enthusiasts for want of a better word and kind of is it are you kind of running focus groups well how it started was back in about march uh, of last year 2014 um ed uh, was uh, Ed and I were talking about how it was very necessary that Canute had uh, actual physical testers. It was fine for us to say, uh, uh, fine for to, to test it visually and to to work out that um, that it actually functions as a machine. But then for 
to get the actual user feedback from it. Uh, we needed a, a group of Braille users. And at that point, it was a very singular idea of just getting a, a group of users together. We then had a meeting uh, of about a dozen or so, uh, 12 to 15 people, um, Braille users, and it became very clear that there was a much bigger call and a much broader scope for um, this group um, and that how they could lead um, the development um, rather than just be, uh, if you like, uh, testers saying yes or no, but actually be the ones that um, step forward the development in various areas and actually produce the feature set that might be uh, wanted uh, as part of the um, as part of the Canute. And I find it very exciting, especially with things like the Canute, is that um, because of the... T we haven't talked about the type of development, but the, the way that the Canute is developed, it's developed by, um, as Ed says, a, a group of amateurs, uh, all, all professionals in their field, but that haven't, haven't specialised in, in Braille uh, technology, so they've got fresh eyes. Um, and it's developed in some uh, place called the Hackspace, which is a sort of community um, uh, community workshop where there's all sorts of machines and, and equipment, but it's also it's not the top of the range uh, milling machines and, and production facilities. And so that has forced the development of a, uh, of a machine that can then be produced uh, pretty much in any uh, similar kind of workshop throughout the world. Um, and the other point is that through the Brailleists, we found that they all want some certain different type of machine. It's with with this kind of um, development, we can actually uh, prototype some very interesting and different machines uh, just on a sort of whim, um, without going to massive tooling costs and massive production systems. Uh, so, which would normally put off. Um, a large-scale uh, development, so you can actually get something out there very quickly, try it out, and uh, it's not a massive financial write-off or time write-off if it doesn't succeed, but it's, it's a very um, direct prototyping system. So as a result, the Bradis Group has become this kind of nice... It's become its own advocacy group, and... Yeah, uh, and there's lots of ways that we can link the, the people and the developers together, uh, the Braille users, the developers together, and linking uh, the Braille, uh, the the developers with funders, and it, it's become a nice connector, if you like, is what we're looking it, at. It's it's very interesting because the Brailleists, uh, just listening to you here, are are really developing. They're pushing the ideas. There's obviously lots of ideas being thrown around the table. We're actually hosting a meeting for you guys this afternoon. I've no doubt there will be more ideas thrown around the table. But also, it, you know, because it struck me, I've been very lucky, just before we came on air to record this interview, I had a look at the Canute and read some Braille from it. And if I'm to describe it for our listeners, it feels like reading Braille off that sticky, see-through paper that people use to put labels on things that you used to put into a Perkins Brailler. It feels absolutely lovely. And I'm curious to know, is that something that people were kind of talking about, the, the quality, the... If I was to describe a shiny Braille, you know, has that come up before? Well, we, it was interesting in the September meeting and the first um, outing of the Canute to the Brailleist, um, the Brailleist group was in September... Um, and that was our first prototype testing, and they all remarked on the on the on the, uh, the state of the pins and and what they liked or they didn't like about it. Now that's great because that that gives Ed and the group uh, and the team immediate feedback, and they can in the next iteration they produce they can take that on board. And indeed, this is the next iteration we brought along. So we haven't changed the design. We decided we've 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 basically replicated it and introduced a few fixes this time around. They okay. have a big, a big feature change in the near future, but this time around, the Braille is much better because they designed it. And on the subject of the, the, the quality of the Braille and the, the, you know, the feel of it, um, the lawyers didn't come up with the Braille, this is an earlier thing. Was a, I was aware from a, a, right from the start there's a big question about whether you go for hard Braille or soft Braille. And I was recommended to go for soft braille, as uh, people were saying, that's what you, that feels nicer on, on yeah. people's thumbs up. But then the more I talked to people about, the more I talked to people like Scott about it and so on, um, it's, it, it, it seemed that, that users, sorry, um, that learners found hard braille easier to get started with. And 
and, and of course you always had the option like uh, we were talking about before we went on air that you can emboss paper from it which we can do from the canoe you can emboss a page not as well as you might do in a professional embosser but it is possible so quick uh, and I think the example you used uh, someone's cooking uh, someone's doing maybe some baking they're reading a recipe off this braille device then they can actually emboss the recipe and save it Yes, without getting chocolate all over the yeah. all over the Fantastic. all over the thing. So we're on the braille page, and that was we we didn't even consider um, the embossing until we had the the September Braillist meeting, and it was proposed. We said, how do I? People start saying, how can we? How can we? Um, Okay. How can we use this in, in, in all circumstances? And they're going to clog up with, okay. with grease and so it's a, it's a prototype device. Very important just to say that again. And I mean, I've, I've, I've had a chance to look at it. It's sitting in a case. It has, there's lots of wires and connectors. It's, it has some circuit boards that are raw. So it's certainly not as it might feel when it's fu- fully produced. Let's talk, Ed, if we can, about some of, the, some of the technical specifications and how it might work. Because is this something you're thinking of that you'll connect with a USB cable to your to your computer or your PC or your Mac or maybe Bluetooth up to a mobile device or wh- where are you where are you on that idea so as to the actual the, the um, it, it, it's it's output it's um, it's unlike um, piezoelectrical displays which is to say the, the the current ones on the market in that it doesn't it refreshes the entire page at a time like a Kindle does it kind of flashes on and then off again um, which means that it's very much for reading a page at a time that's what it's designed for um, so there's no reason why you couldn't connect it to any device to do that. Uh, you would be probably it'd be better. It's more it's more a device for reading, you know, pages at a time. Whether that's a page off, you could connect it to your phone and read and read books off that, read um, e-books off that. You could possibly connect it to a Kindle. We're very interested in, in connecting up to to as many different devices as possible. Um, you, it's certainly possible to, to, to write software to, for it to work with screen readers. Perhaps it perhaps wouldn't be so useful to to um, to, to uh, um, very competent Braille users for very fast moving around a Windows environment. Though it's more very much an ebook reader. I'm very interested at the at the idea of being able to use. I use the Kindle app on my iPhone. Uh, read lots of books on it mm. and the idea that I could actually read multiple line braille on this display from the Kindle app but you were also looking talking with me about the idea that this might actually be an ebook reader in its own right and that you may actually have software on the device that allows you to read books and it goes back to there's always this sort of um, discussion isn't there about whether you whether you include inbuilt software or whether you essentially just make this device into a terminal that will connect with other devices? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. There was, um, if anyone can find it, I'm not sure the podcast is still live. There's a, there's a good interview with In Touch late last year with um, Kevin Carey, um, who's involved with the Orbit, uh, the Orbit Braille display. And they asked the same question, which was, Peter White asked him, I think, which is, why is it just a dumb uh, a dumb, a dumb device with no in- internal functionality or very little, and he said it makes it simpler for to maintain it. It means it means that the, the onus is on Apple to make sure that it works, that the software works. We are torn. We think that perhaps there's, there's a lot of it, there's a lot of reasons for having um, for having it as a standalone unit. It's a, we we want to talk to the basically we're going to decide this by talking to the braillists about okay. it. That's okay. also part of the modularity of it, that you might have a, a dumb terminal version as a very simple version that you plug into your computer, but it wouldn't be too hard to think that you could have the version with the full, with the full computer behind it that, or, the, or even a, a halfway stage, which is just it can read straight off a USB stick um, yeah. some, some books. And all our, all our software and, and our firmware is going to be open sourced. So anyone, everyone who's inclined, who's irritated by a, a certain limitation in some way or ins- inspired to, to add something to it could do so. Which is great. You're going to be opening it up to the community and hopefully more um, people like yourselves who just come from the world of engineering and, and who might be interested in Braille because I think that's clearly what what's, seems to be working very well. Um, people may be listening to this podcast, I've no doubt excited because I, I mean, I was excited when I read about it when we made the contacts with you guys. How probably a very difficult question to answer, but how far away are we, do you think, from the Canute sitting on my desk? 
Well, reading um, the book, like you say, is a difficult one to answer. I'll give you the history so far as perhaps a, a good indicator. Um, we've been developing it from the very earliest stage for two years now. Uh, most of that time was spent developing little models that was maybe one cell or two cells, just trying to get it working at that level. And we moved, we started making more than a two cell model um, only uh, kind of middle of or, or the start of uh, 2014. So there's a huge, been a huge amount of progress towards the end of the year. Our current prototype, which uh, you tried earlier, is a um, is 12 cells by four lines. Now, 12 cells is because it's simply easier to work with a prototype. Our, our aim is to go for 28 cells, which um, should give you a good three or four words per line. Uh, and it also matches the, the new Perkins Brailler, the, the, the plastic one. Okay. And that we, we want to go for a um, for the next design, which would be a 28 cells one, and by four lines by April sometime, or in April. That's our, that's our plan. After that, We'll see what happens. It's very difficult to find funding for this kind of thing. In terms of going to market in a big scale, it really depends on how, uh, whether we can find any, any supporters, any backers. Sure, because obviously there are the manufacturing costs and just actually getting this thing out there, I suppose, you know? Yes, uh, we're, we're going for batch manufacturing it initially because we, we, we're not expecting to be able to, to launch in a huge way. So we're, we're used by now to running on, a, to running on fumes as a, as a company and we, we're not going to stop simply because we, we failed to find a large amount of money. Okay. Steph, for, for Braille uh, users, people interested in Braille, people listening to this podcast who might like to, I suppose, be a part of of you know what I think is something really exciting. Can they do that maybe remotely, or are there are there sort of um, opportunities for people to have an input into this thing? Well, well the Braillist group is definitely still in very much in development, um, but we are um, wanting to uh, I'm developing the website at the moment, um, and we're hoping that that will become a lively forum of uh, debate on there uh, for people of all places to uh, come together. We're actually also looking at how we could possibly run localized groups because i think it's very important that people um, that people get together and have these discussions we found that actually all being in the same room at the same time uh, has made uh, an immense kind of difference with the dynamic of people interacting and actually just being there and talking and also testing the equipment and being able to point to it and say look but what about this bit um and so we're we're very interested in in uh Obviously, I can't be everywhere all the time, but maybe having localised people uh, running their own localised uh, Braillist groups. So, so you're trying to find champions, I suppose. Exactly. We're trying to find champions to... And then we can share resources. We can, you know, people do presentations. If we've got companies coming in wanting to tell us about their different products um, or test prototype early developments, then, you know, if they go to one brailist meeting in one place they'll know it's going to be very similar in another place and all those things that uh, taking of running a group uh, consists of how you have uh, communication how you um, interact with people how you get people uh, to know about these things um, can all be shared uh, over the sort of wider umbrella okay and i should i'd like to add if i may, if i may that um in bristol braille technology we're planning on on in expanding these canute, these batches of canutes that we can sell at a small level to people at the same rate that the Brailless expands. So we're looking at if people are really interested in, in getting hands on the canutes on the early versions, we'll, they'll be we'll be we'll be talking mostly these will be distributed amongst the Brailless and, and so we can have oh, really? really so, good so feedback. So there is the possibility or rather there will be the possibility that people can you know, maybe get access to a, a slightly early, um, rough around the edges. We we certainly intend to we have a tend to have a batch by the end of April, April, which we will be distributing for for some not for people to own necessarily, but mm. to trial and to try at home and, and home put my put my yeah. name down, will you? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> right. Absolutely, um, guys. It's very interesting. I mean, uh, we're going to be talking uh, today. Of course, there's lots of different people. Uh, we're excited to be facilitating uh, some braille, uh, very proficient braille readers in NCBI in later on today to have a look and I really hope it goes well I think it's an exciting product first multi-line braille display I've ever seen and uh, very exciting to have you here so thank you for taking the time to come and chat to us today and hope to keep in touch with you thank, thank you, you very much. much it's a great pleasure 
Well, I think that was one of the nicest interviews I've participated in in a long time. Uh, thanks very much to Ed Rogers and Steph Tiska, two of the nicest guys you could meet. Had a really nice chat with them later on when we brought them for a quick glass of Guinness in a well-known Dublin pub. And, you know, I'll say it again, two fully sighted guys who are passionate about making refreshable Braille technology available to as many people as possible at as low a price as possible. And I think the potential and the future of the Canute is very um, exciting. So we're definitely going to keep an eye on that one. And thanks sincerely to Ed and Steph uh, for giving their time and talking to us on the podcast. Now, speaking of Braille, I want to let you know about INBAF. That's the Irish National Braille and Alternative Formats Association, uh, which is a group comprising the main Braille production centres in Ireland, including NCBI, National Braille Production at Child Vision, and the Arbor Hill Braille Production Facility. Well, on Wednesday, the 4th of March, INBAF are holding an information session for the new Unified English Braille and updated Irish Braille codes. This information session will take place in Clare Galway College, which is in Clare Galway Corporate Park in Clare Galway in County Galway. Uh, It's on from 3pm to 6pm and we'd love to see people coming in because we're not only going to be showing you new Unified English Braille and updated Irish Braille, but we'll be showing you how these new codes can be used with refreshable Braille technology. I'm very excited to be getting involved in this project and I'm hoping that we can meet some Braille readers and users and people who support people to use Braille in the West of Ireland. So the West will very much be awake on Wednesday, the 4th of March. We're looking forward to coming down. So please put the date in your diary. If you have more questions or you want to know more about the day, give me a shout in NCBI on uh, 87 Earlier, we spoke with Niall Gallagher in Sligo, who contacted us in December and wanted to talk about his use of technology. Someone else who's got in touch and indeed who's been a frequent correspondent with me since our technology podcast started is Eleanor Burke, and she joins me on Skype from her home in London. Eleanor, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Stuart. Lovely to have you at last. Well, at last, indeed. It's great. You know, like you said... I listen to your podcasts every month and they're always so interesting and immediately I'm itching to get on my computer or whatever, get on the email and make comments. Well, you're always emailing in. It's very much appreciated. Um, Before we we talk a little bit about you, I think the whole thrust of you getting in touch was you sent me a a really interesting mail after the December edition of the podcast where people may remember I was, I'm going to use the word attempting, Eleanor, to show KNFB Reader. And I think that's probably fair because I didn't do very well. And you you, you outlined in your email that you were disappointed I didn't get uh, better scanning results. And I think that was then we had a bit of a conversation about bringing you on to talk a bit about KNFB Reader. But before we do that, tell us a bit about yourself, because you're, I think I'm correct in saying you're not totally blind. I'm not totally blind, no. Um, I have residual vision. I was borderline when I was at school at St. Mary's in Marion. But when I first went to St. Mary's at the age of 10, I opted to be educated as a blind person through Braille and, of course, then it was typing, which we used. Is that because you were sort of maybe looking ahead to if your vision deteriorated, that you wouldn't have this big learning curve when you're maybe in the middle of your career? No, I think it was because I went to ordinary primary school until the age of 10. And I was by then very, very frustrated because I couldn't read and I couldn't write like my friends. So have you maintained, let's say you mentioned Braille there, have you maintained those skills whilst still using your low vision? Oh, absolutely. Which is fantastic. Braille to me is very, very important. And I just love the experience of reading Braille. That sounds crazy, but, you know, it's... It's my medium now. I, I think I think so many of us talk about Braille, and, and I, I've often said to people, because in my work I use it pretty much every day, but with so many Braille devices now, I still frequently, when I'm going to meetings, carry sheets of Braille paper. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And to me, again, as you say, we're talking about technology, but I'll rush and get out of Perkins 
very quickly and right on the Perkins. There's nothing like it. It's great. Okay. So you have these skills, I suppose, that uh, maybe might be more akin to totally blind people, but you have low vision. And I guess as a result of that too, the, the type of technology you, you must use is, is pretty broad. Well, yes, it is actually. I use CCTVs, which are large print magnifiers. I have a portable one and the standard desktop type. Portable is always very handy for bringing out and about. I saw one a few years ago at the site village here in London. It was very expensive, but it was well worth the purchase. It's called a Ruby, and it's made by Freedom Scientific. It came in at £500 sterling, but it's fantastic because I can just pick up piece of paper on the table see what it is if it's um if i'm going through post look and see if it's post from me look and see if it's a receipt a wide range of things and it goes up to a very high magnification i can't be specific about the magnification level because that's also determined by how large the print is and the quality of print on the other hand i have um, it's called a Topaz CCTV, and it's again made by Freedom Scientific. It's a desktop, and it sits beside my computer. I associate it mainly with studying and reading in relation to my study, or long-term reading, not two minutes reading, but maybe half an hour's reading. Okay. When, when you talk about CCTVs, I mean, you, you mentioned the topaz there from, from Freedom Scientific, and there are so many CT, CCTVs oh, so out many. there. And mm-hmm. I, I, as a blind person, feel one, feel the next, and they all seem a bit the same. What do you look for in a CCTV? What, what for people with low vision, do you think is kind of key in a, in a CC device, CCTV device? If there's three or four of them side by side, what, what would be the kind of the winning, the winning combination, maybe? For me, I suppose, thinking of my background as a physiotherapist, the first thing that comes to mind is my posture. And for many years, I had glasses, which were actually referred to as LVAs, low vision aids, although they were built into the magnifier. And I was always sitting hunched up, shoulders, head in a book, So now with the CCTV, the most important thing to me is that I'm sitting up straight and have a good posture. After that, I'm looking, my preference is for, I think it's called a negative display. It's a white text on a dark black background. The original CCTVs, when they first came out, they just had a positive and a negative. But now it has been discovered that different people with different visual problems, you can get all sorts of combinations. You can have a yellow background and blue text or a blue background and yellow text, etc. So, first of all, as I said, the contrast, that's very important. And after that, obviously, setting the magnification level. So CCTVs for you, you you mentioned there, you can check posts, you can check a receipt. Uh, They allow you to to read and enlarge the text on the screen. You have a portable one, you have one sitting on your desk. I'm curious, why then would you as someone with, because in, in this context, you've low vision, why would you as someone with low vision then also find the need for the app that that prompted you to get in touch, which is KNFB Reader? Oh, well, I mean, KNFB Reader to me has just become some form of miracle app. I've only become an iPhone user, an iOS user, actually, in the past year. I'd heard about KNFB Reader when it was on the Nokia, I think it was N82. And it was so expensive, I wouldn't even consider buying it, although I did have it demonstrated to me. Now, I do actually like also having something read to me. And sometimes it can just be good to take a quick snapshot and just hear the item read out. It 
it might depend on time of day, how I'm feeling in terms of my visual acuity during the day. But, yeah, it's a speech-based, and I became involved in using speech-based processors in the mid-90s, really. So I'm quite at home with speech feedback when I'm using a device. And I suppose the quality of synthetic speech, I mean, you mentioned the mid-90s, the quality of synthetic speech has, has, has moved you know, miraculously since the mid nineties, although many uh, many of us yes. might prefer the older the older types. Oh no, yes, yes indeed. The quality has. And this is very interesting. But I would prefer the older type. The real now actually when I use my computer, I use Dolphin Supernova. And Dolphin Supernova, when it first started out, there were two packages. There was HAL speech and there was lunar magnification. But Towards the turn of the century, around 2000, maybe it was 1999, I really can't quite remember, they incorporated the two together, which is really great. And so, I again, I can have magnification on my computer while having speech feedback. Now, I have noticed in discussions with visually impaired people that those who seem to have lost vision when they were older seem to go more for these real speak voices. But I'm very happy with eloquence. Many, I know many people talk about, uh, you know, synthesizers like eloquence, which you've just mentioned, and I would tend to agree with this, that people say, if you want speed and you want to get through something quickly, you can crank it right up and it, it, it can still do it, whereas the natural sounding voices tend to struggle when they're, when they're faster. They do, they do. Mm. Um, now, that said, Stuart, I have to admit, there are some people who use eloquence at such a speed. I, I certainly couldn't use it for study purposes at a very high speed. I need to be taking in the information at the same time. Okay, let's go back to, to KNFB for a moment, because this is, the, this is, as I said, what prompted you to get in touch and where I'm sort of curious, because you're, I suppose you're describing different use case scenarios where you're using your CCTV and your KNFB. Can you magnify the, uh, the resulting scan on screen on your iPhone or iPad, or do you do that, or do you just listen? I don't do it. I just listen. Okay. But when we discuss it a little more now, of course... First of all, we can scan in the image. And I think you were asking why I went for KNFB. Thinking of it in terms of an OCR, then I can scan the image in. I can hear quickly what it says. And if it's important, of course, I can transfer it to my computer via Dropbox. And then I could play around with it if I needed to, depending on the document. Of course. So you can have the image, put it onto your PC and then magnify it. And, yes. and, and and see it. And, yes, and edit it if I wish or whatever. And will that work? If you had a, a document with text and a photo on the one page, will will you get will you get the photo on the image as well? KNFB seems to it. It really just saves a text file, and basically, if I'm doing an OCR, which is the optical character recognition, I'm obviously doing that for gaining the text rather than an image. It's not the image I'm interested in. And KNFB Reader, when it's reading, ignores the image. So what are the maybe some of the tips or some of the, the, the suggestions you might have for people to get optimum use of this KNFB Reader app, which, you know, everyone's talking about, still talking about it. It's, it seems, it, it is amazing because I've seen people use it a whole lot better than me. Uh, lighting is a, con is, a, is a concern, isn't it? Because you're never quite sure, should you have the lights on, the flash be, be automatic or on? Have you any, any tips on those type of things? Well, in terms of lighting, I think for somebody who has no vision and they tend not to turn on lights, it would be useful just to turn on a light so that you just have... Now, tonight it's dark and I just have the ordinary lights on here in my living room. It's a standard illumination. I don't have extra strong light because of my visual impairment and it works fine. There is... The flash, as you say, and the flash is actually quite bright. Now, I haven't actually tried it without any lighting, 
So I'm not sure how that would actually work. There's a feature on KNFB Reader. I mentioned it very briefly in my review, but I wasn't using it at the time. It's called Tilt Guidance. And you and I spoke about it briefly off air before we started this interview. And um, what it does basically is it keeps vibrating until you've until you're holding the camera straight and directly above the page uh, you've you've found that maybe to be a little frustrating um well very uncomfortable actually whatever about frustrating i did try it to begin with because i'm happy to try anything that'll help me i'll give it a go but it was just the most awful experience the vibration was almost going through my wrist bones, and I just had to turn it off. And the field of view report, of course, is something that I suppose, and we we talked about this in December, people should be using because it will give you a quick snapshot. It says, yes, the page is in focus. So that's a useful thing to do first, isn't it? Yes, but I don't like the language that the field of view gives me, the feedback of what it says. Now, maybe that's me. Um, I know in the documentation it says that using the field of view, you will know if the four corners are shown and that the picture can see them. But my field of view, when it gives it back, despite the fact that I might have some residual vision, it's talking about it being at a slight angle. So I couldn't, personally, I couldn't be bothered with the field of view. Okay. So let's talk about the environments in which you've used KNFB Reader. I've heard of people using it in hotels. I know someone used it on a train. Uh, you know, you, you, maybe you want to read a menu in a bar. Have you used it out and about, let's say, outside of your house, which might be a more controlled environment? Yes. Yes, I have. I've used it, for instance, at the airport where somebody's handed me a document, obviously a print, like a card, and I'm wondering what's on it. Now, I don't tend to use it for reading menus because to me, reading menus is just a social situation. And I like somebody telling me actually what's on a menu and making conversation from that. Eleanor, let's talk maybe just broadly again for a moment before we let you go about technology, because I'm always curious especially for people like yourself who are using lots of technology, you have lots of different devices. What's missing for you? What, what do you not have? What would you like? What, what might make your life easier? I suppose really a better Braille writer and display for the iOS devices. I do have a Braille display. Um, I do have the Focus Blue 40, but it's pretty chunky. I wouldn't describe it as portable. I have seen some smaller ones, but then they're, they're not great. But and yet they're expensive enough, three, four hundred. Um, I would just like to just find the perfect, as I said, braille display. Maybe about fourteen cells, but also a note taker. So a braille, I suppose, a braille note taker. That's. Um, cheaper, uh, more portable, and would allow you also maybe to connect to a, a mobile device. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's about it, really. So, final question, Eleanor. We ask everybody um, if we were to to take all your technology from you, uh, what one piece would you not allow us to take? What's what's something that you're never without? Since I got the iPhone, I'm never without the iPhone. It's always with me. It's it's a fantastic invention for me, dare I say, it's half a century since I first went to St. Mary's. And to think that carrying around such a small device with me and how much I can get from it, it can just be my eyes everywhere. Yeah, I have the KNFB reader on it so I can pick up a piece of print material. On the other hand, given... I don't know what its dimensions are right now, but given that it's a device fitting in my pocket, I can then read emails, I can quickly go on the internet, I can access information immediately, I could book flights if I was going somewhere, look up train timetables, send notes, send somebody, um, you know, ring them up, and even speak to somebody like yourself online using Skype. 
we've talked about the iPhone with other people on this podcast. And one of the things I've said on a couple of interviews previously is I've often now gone to meetings and indeed gone to conferences and brought my iPhone and a Bluetooth keyboard and nothing else. Absolutely. You know, you, you, I mean, you're really prepared. I'm going to Ireland now on Thursday and I'm not bringing much with me. And I'm saying, what technology will I bring? And I'm saying, well, definitely iPhone and keyboard. And let me say, as my parting wish, I would like to see more, perhaps NCBI taking on more a role in training with voiceover on the Mac. I think now a lot of visually impaired people are considering moving away from Windows to the Mac. I think it's something that we're seeing a lot more of too in NCBI. And it's something that our trainers and those people who work with us, volunteers, uh, and indeed our own tech support staff are responding to already and will continue, I think, um, to respond to. So thanks a million, Eleanor, for talking to us and uh, hope to chat to you soon. Thank you, Stuart. Many thanks to Eleanor Burke there for a really nice chat. You know, it's lovely to talk to listeners of the podcast. And I think that's been sort of the focus this month, really, uh, with Niall there at the very start and then Eleanor uh, finishing us off and just speaking about their use of technology and their advice and their thoughts. And that's really what this podcast is about. And we'd love to hear your voice. If you'd like to come on, if you'd like to talk about your use of technology, if you have something to say, I really want to hear from you. Give us a shout, technologypodcast at ncbi.ie. So sincere thanks, Niall. Sincere thanks, of course, to Ed Rogers and Steve Tiska, and of course, to Eleanor Burke. That's just about it for this month. Join us in March when, amongst other things, our technical support officer, Paul Trainer, will be back to talk all things tech support. Until then, this is Stuart Lawler saying thank you for listening. Take care, have a good month, and goodbye. Goodbye.